So these ancient stories about the prophets are pretty amazing. Stretch your credulity maybe a little bit. But the important thing here is to hear the message that the story is seeking to convey and to understand that well we need to appreciate the context in which this story takes place. And to really understand that we have to understand the call of Israel because the origin story of the people of Israel is a story of response to a kind of call from God. Remember that Abraham heard God say, come, I'll show you a land and I'll make your people abundant and all that kind of stuff. He just went off into the, the wilderness. It was a prophetic kind of thing. He had his sons, Isaac and Jacob. They continued to hear God telling them different things as they went through life. And remember Joseph, who was a dream interpreter, kind of had messages from God about what different things would mean. And Moses, who heard the law being handed down and started to establish some of the most basic laws and institutions of the people and then called the people out of bondage in Egypt. And then there was a season of the judges. So there was this kind of groups of 12 tribes that were going about their business in this new land and every now and then they were threatened by outside nations and a single leader would be raised up and get whichever tribes are nearby together and be their captain, as it were, and champion the resistance against invasion. Up to this point, though, structures and formal institutions are not firmly established in Israel. The nation is not functioning as a nation. It's more a loose confederation of tribes. Um, They have intermittent willingness to work together and support each other, and sometimes, like brothers do, they fought with each other, you know little civil wars here and there. And then there's the prophet Samuel who does a really strategic job in bringing all these tribes together and starts to form them as a nation. They do quite brilliant exploits together militarily and um, they start to prosper in all sorts of ways. But then as poor old Samuel's getting older, the people get nervous about what happens next and they ask for a king. The monarchy is established. Now, The first king of Israel is King Saul. He's there for a very short time. He does some pretty good work, but suddenly gets very insecure about his position and um, gets killed in the battle. And King David becomes the new king. And King David is the shepherd king. People love him. He does extremely well at battle and starts to establish the beginnings of all sorts of um, different things in the life of Israel. He has a vision for setting up a temple in Jerusalem where people can worship God. After David comes King Solomon, who was a very wise king, you might remember. And he does brilliantly well at expanding the territory and the wealth of Israel goes through the roof and people bring gifts to him from all over the world to get his wisdom. It's quite an extraordinary time. And Israel, this is probably the golden political age of Israel. They were the biggest they ever were in the history of Israel at that time. But this expansion puts so much taxation pressure on the people, the northern tribes start to get a bit agitated because Jerusalem is down south and all the wealth seems to be going down there. And the northern tribes go, yeah, maybe we could do all right without them. Maybe we could become independent. And they form their own kingdom with their own king and they set up their own sites for worship and people don't have to go down to Jerusalem for festivals anymore. And the institutions of politics and religion 
start to contaminate each other. So the northern kingdoms set up these secondary worship sites, which are really a political thing. It says, don't have anything to do with your southern cousins. You can worship up here and leave your money up here and don't get contaminated by ideas from down there. So this is the context that Elijah arises in. There's this kind of contamination of politics and religion. And the people need to re-understand God's call to them. They had begun to shun their uniqueness as divinely called people. Even the request for a king is framed in not very helpful terms because they're basically looking at all the kingdoms around them and going, they've all got kings, we need a king too, so we can be just like them. That's what the request says. Um, Behold, the the people say to, to Samuel, behold, you have grown old and your sons do not walk in your way, so they're no good to us. Um, Now appoint a king for us to judge us just like all the other nations. So their religion had begun to serve their politics, and their politics was usurping the place of their one true king, and Israel was increasingly functioning just like every other nation around them. Fear was causing them to abandon their relationship with God. And this is not rocket science, right? This is pretty obvious. It's straightforward that we go along easily with something when it's well supported by the environment around us. But when part of the culture around us starts to doubt it, or indeed a majority of the culture around us starts to hold a different view, it's harder and harder to hold a view that is different to the majority. When I started my role as chaplain at Wesley College, um, I was given the opportunity to introduce myself to the rest of the staff in the college. It was a formal meeting setting, and I wanted to make it really clear that I wasn't a narrow-minded person that needed people to believe the same things that I believed. I wanted to be open and generous and da-da-da. But I also wanted to make it really clear that I had real faith. I had definite ideas, and if you wanted to ask me about them, I was happy to share them and that kind of thing. So... It was a funny thing because in this setting here, I can talk very freely about my faith. Well, duh, I'm in church and that's what it's all about. But in a setting where faith wasn't such a main focus and all these other staff people kind of go, I could see them looking at me going, chaplain, huh? I wonder what one of those is. And to start talking about my faith in that context, I just found a little bit more difficult. I did it and... Indeed, as I've gotten to know the staff more, that conversation is much freer and more natural. But when you don't know or when you think people have a different point of view, it's much harder to believe those things and to be comfortable with them. And when there's not a culture of support, it's much easier to doubt the centrality of God. So just like us, the people of Israel constantly needed to be reminded of who they were and where they had come from. And this is where we see Elijah's ministry come in because he was one who called the people and particularly the leaders back to God. It was clear that the kings of Israel had become puppets of other powers as time went on. They'd sold out due to their fear of their powerful neighbours and they were forgetting what they stood for and who they stood for, what they'd been called to. They were very vulnerable to being overwhelmed by seemingly greater forces, which is a way of saying they had come to believe that the armies of their neighbours were more powerful than the power of their God, which, again, you can kind of understand because weapons are solid and God is sometimes hard to find. 
the practice of worshipping the local deities called Baals. So in in uh, the land where Israel had gone into, there were local deities, our fertility gods, they're called the Baals. And each local area had its own Baal. And you would worship that Baal if you wanted your crops to grow well and you wanted to be protected by from enemies and that kind of thing. And that worship of Baal had become quite widespread in Israel, chiefly because the king's wife, Jezebel, was a big fan. She was supporting it. And uh, here we need to remember the persuasive power of local knowledge because if you have local knowledge, that's a powerful thing. My mate, Tace, who might be listening, so I'll say hi, Tace. Um, he went recently for a camping trip up in the Snowy Mountains where he wanted to stay in the outdoors for a while and do a bit of fly fishing. He was on his own and he found the place where nearby where he wanted to camp and there was a little township nearby and a, a fishing tackle shop there. And he went in and uh, tasted the surface so he knows about the local knowledge and he said to the guy in the shop, look, I understand locals have their special spots. I'm not asking you to tell me where your special spot is. I know you won't tell me that. But could you give me a clue about where I might get lucky? (laughs) Because he knew the value of local knowledge. Like there's a river, there'll be good spots, there'll be less good spots. People know that stuff if they've been around a while. Local knowledge is powerful. And this is kind of how the Baals were considered. They're local gods. They know how stuff works here. Get on their good side and you'll be all right. Keeping them happy, engage in their local rites and rituals, this would ensure you will do well in that area. And Elijah wanted to challenge that strategy. He wanted the people to remember that God, the God who called them, had very particular ways and they weren't just like the local deities. And so we see this um, circuitous route. If you look at it on a map, it kind of goes around like this, that um, Elijah and Elisha take from Gilgal back to the Jordan. It roughly retraces in reverse the pathway that the people entering the promised land took. And this is significant. It is an enacted reminder of where the people came from in a funny kind of way. It was supposed to remind the people that they were called by God into this land that was promised to them of which they are not of. They are not the local people here. It was emphasising their disconnect in a funny kind of way. They came from another place, from beyond the locality. There was something important about this in but not of Idea And Jesus speaks of it in John chapter 17 when he's praying for the disciples. He says, I have given the disciples your word. He's praying to God. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but keep them safe from the evil one, for they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. And Elijah wanted to say to the people, you're in the land, but you are not of the land. The local deities are not your deities. We have a different way of doing it. I know that rubs with some of our political correctness these days where we need to you know, really be enculturated. Because culture is a funny thing. You only need two people to create a culture. Probably only need one, really. Um, culture at its most basic is the assumed patterns and systems which a group functions 
with and it holds the group together. It's the way we do things here. That's the culture. Culture is inherently neither good nor evil. It depends on how the culture functions and what it facilitates. Institutions have their culture and at the same time institutions are an expression of a culture, which is interesting to think about because having a police force is an expression of a culture of the rule of law. And yet within the police force, you can have lawless police officers. So you can have a culture that gives rise to a rule of law and a police force, and within the cultural institution, you can have lawlessness. So it's an interesting thing that's going on there. Institutions are important, but the institution itself is never enough. And this is where the spirit comes in and a character like Elijah is so important because the spirit of the cult or the culture of the institution is crucial to its function and role within the broader society. The institution of worship is crucial to Israel until it is corrupted and co-opted for illegitimate political purposes. Elijah called the people to return to what their worship was always intended to be about. The most famous incident happened at Mount Carmel. You can read it in 1 Kings chapter 18. It's quite comedic the way it's written. Um, Elijah gathers all the prophets of Baal, 450 of them, I believe, and there's a showdown where they were to get an altar and put a sacrifice on it and call on their gods to come and consume the sacrifice, and they did it all day and nothing happened, and Elijah makes fun of them quite cruelly, actually. It's quite funny, which I don't encourage, of course. But um, then Elijah puts his sacrifice there and tips water all over it, so there's no possibility that there's some hidden flame ready to ignite it, and uh, calls on the God of Israel, and fire comes down from heaven and consumes the, the sacrifice completely. And Elijah wanted to make it really clear there is a world of difference between the gods of Baal, the local gods, and the God of Israel. In due course, the corruption of worship in Israel became so inseparably connected with their temple practices that the prophets who came along and followed in Elijah's footsteps, like Elisha and so forth, eventually these prophets called for the utter abandonment of temple worship practices in Israel altogether. Instead, these later prophets begin articulating more directly what respect for God looks like in the society Things like doing justice, loving mercy, walking humbly. Worshipping God was not so much about elaborate religious ceremonies as it was about honouring every person who has been made in the image of God. And when Jesus arrives many generations later, we see him adhere to the culture at the cultural and religious institutions of his day, he respects those and he reintroduces the true spirit of what these institutions were always meant to represent. So we can see Jesus both keeping the Sabbath and healing on the Sabbath because he said the Sabbaths were never meant to be about blocking life from people. It was always about remembering where life comes from. And so life's allowed to be there, as it were. This story of the death of Elijah 
and the passing on of the prophetic mantle to Elisha is meant to convey the importance of the prophetic critique of institutional religion. In retracing the entry into the land of the people and the school of prophets coming forth to greet Elijah and Elisha at each station along the way, and the parting of the Jordan with the touching of the, the mantle and the, the chariot of fire at the very end, all these things serve to emphasize the central importance of the prophet's role in the life of the people. The passing on of the mantle with the double blessing tells us that this was the beginning of something, not a one-off spectacular particular event. No, this was the beginning of a prophetic stream of tradition that was going to go on. And we're meant to see that both institution and the spirit are required to build a strong people of faith. And these two are frequently in tension. And the most fruitful place to live is in that tension. It's not the easiest place to live, but it is the most fruitful place to live. And so my prayer is that God will give us the grace to stand firm in those institutions which we should never compromise and listen for the deep truth of God's spirit as we seek to give full expression to our life of faith in the institutions that might bring life and strength to all people, to the glory of God. Amen.